0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Tricia Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode, Anne-Marie Slaughter talks about her new book, Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, Family, with Senior Editor of The Atlantic, Hannah Rosen. In 2012, Slaughter penned Why Women Still Can't Have It All, one of the most read articles in the history of The Atlantic magazine. Since then, she has reexamined, reflected, and broken free of her long-standing assumptions about work, life, and family. She shares her vision for what true equality between men and women really means, and how we can get there. Unfinished Business will be released at the end of September. Here are Anne-Marie Slaughter and Hannah Rosen.
1: I am Hannah Rosen, I am a a writer for the Atlantic Magazine, and uh, I'm here with Anne-Marie Slaughter today. Hi Anne-Marie. (laughs) Um, Anne-Marie is uh, Professor Emeritus at Princeton, uh, was the first woman director of the policy planning staff, which means she worked uh, at the State Department, meaning she worked closely with Hillary Clinton, and is now the president and CEO of the New America Foundation. The way I think of her bio, first she conquered foreign policy, now she is conquering domestic policy. (laughs) So... um, That largely happened because Anne-Marie wrote a story in uh, our magazine, which was the most read story in the magazine's history, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. And she has now turned it into this book called Unfinished Business, which is out in September and which I will tell you, you guys are having the first preview of. So I am proud to be the person interviewing her, and and you're our first test audience. So, Uh Anne-Marie, let's start with... Why a book? So you, you wrote this article. The, the article, for those of you who haven't read it, basically started with an intense conflict that she had over when she was she was at the state living in Princeton, working at the State Department on a very uh, critical, important task, and then had a teenage child crisis. Um, so it was how how she what this crisis taught her. Um, so then so then you wrote this article. So many women responded to it. I have the same conflicts at work. Why did you want to turn it into a book?
2: Thank you. So first of all, it's, it is great to see everybody, uh, and uh, this is this is the first and only conversation about this book until the end of end of September. But it was very important here because it was exactly three years ago that my article was the cover article on the Ideas issue in 2012, uh, and three years later, long three years later, uh, we have a book, and to your point, a week before the article came out, I said to my agent, I am not writing a book. I don't care what happens. I mean, it was we knew it was gonna be a cover story. We obviously had no concept that what would happen happened. But I was like, I've got a foreign policy book I wanna write, that's a book I'm now writing this summer. <laughs> I don't wanna write a book. This is, you know, I'm, I've said what I wanna say, and this is, this is not, I'm not a, an academic in this area, this has not been an area I've written. And a week later, within a week, I had gotten hundreds and hundreds of emails that became thousands that were so powerful. Often they would start with, I cried when I read your article. There were women who wrote me saying, you know, I I couldn't stop reading it, and I cried because I finally felt like someone was validating or vindicating my experience, and I felt even a week later, that I had to write a book to give voice to millions of people, mostly women, but as you'll hear, a number of men, who wrote me who and, and had no voice or platform themselves. Uh, and so I wrote, I then agreed to write the book, feeling that it was, having started the conversation, I had to pr- continue it and give voice uh, at, to, uh, those those messages, and all through the book, those emails or conversations are repeated, often uh, sometimes attributed and sometimes you know under a false name, obviously all with permission.
1: So before I jump into the details of the book, give us like two examples of a kind of letter. I mean, say one from a woman, one from a man. So just we have a sense of the kinds of, who's, who, who's the audience?
2: Well, so the first thing to say is the audience, um, the majority probably are... Uh, middle to upper middle class women, but not exclusively. And I, I, had a, uh, I had letters from police women and fire, women, uh, fire firefighters, I guess I should call them, not firewomen. Fire uh, 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 one woman, one letter, to give you an example, uh, from a, a woman who was in college uh, with two children in Oregon who said, you know, I'm trying to make it. There is no provision for being a student and being a mother. Right? Because we do not assume that college students are mothers, and yet I'm, you know, I'm trying to do exactly this, and I can't balance this. Uh, as one example, uh, and many letters from former former students uh, talking about their their crises in law. The the letter I remember most from a man, and this book is called Unfinished Business: Women, Men, Work, and Family, and it is aimed at men. Uh, it, as much as it is as as women. I hope that women will read it and then hand it to their partners. Uh, But a man who wrote and said, "You you think men have it all. We are as much prisoners of how we've been socialized as women are. I would much rather be able to spend much more time with my family. But that is not an option for me. That is the life role I have been given. And then he went on to anticipate my counter argument. He he said, you're thinking, oh, men don't really want that. But you know, that's what men thought about women in the 50s. That's what men said. Women don't want to leave the home. Women don't want to have careers. Women are really happy doing what they're doing. And that was the the strongest letter, but I would say 15 to 20% of the responses I got were from men on variations of that theme, saying this is what we're expected to do, but we would actually like to have a much better balance between what I call breadwinning and caregiving uh, than society allows us to have.
1: Okay, so let's dig in here. We're going to start with the wo- the woman. Let's say the woman who wrote you that letter. So so the way the book is constructed, there are certain ideas that she has which you relabel as myths. So I'm going to go through a couple of those myths. Um, you tell a woman that if she, if you tell that woman, let's say you were to write an answer to that woman in college, well, if you were just committed enough, if you just had enough energy and were committed to college in your career, you could make this work. So what's wrong with that message? Okay.
2: All right, so otherwise known as the lean-in question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, first thing to say is, um, I, think, I think Lean In, the, the book, the movement, is doing extraordinary things for millions of women and I'm very supportive of it. Uh, and I think it, it is right but incomplete. So my answer would be, there, yes, you know, believing you can do it and taking your seat at the table and um, you know, having the confidence to claim an equal position is something that many of us have been mentoring younger women to do for a very long time. But I would also say life happens. Um, and I would say that most of the women, who, all the women who wrote to me resonated with my story because my story was, I'm going along and I think I can do it and I've got this you know, precarious equilibrium, but it's working, and suddenly I hit a tipping point. And that tipping point was not something I could do anything about. In my case, I'm working in another city and I've got a teenager who's really going off the rails. Parenthetically, that fabulous young man is starting college in the fall. <laughs> Um, And uh, you know, I don't know that my going home made that difference. But I know if I hadn't gone home, I might never. I would have always wondered, right? I mean, so. um, But so, what I'd say to her is, you you can't predict, right? You you get a divorce, an illness, a child with special needs, your husband or, or you need to move, and you move away from your family. Things happen, and no amount. Of your leaning in, of your you know wanting it to be, is going to make that any different. I I'm as de- dedicated to my career as anybody I've ever met, but that wasn't the issue. The issue was, I was married. I adore my you know I love my children. I it was a responsibility, but
1: it was also a desire, uh, and you have to anticipate that. Give us an example in the book from you know other women who have had unanticipated things come up women who've written you who say you know i don't know all kinds of jobs you quote working class women i mean you quote women at every level who, who for whom things just happen you know it's
2: funny the one that sticks in my mind the most and it and it's part of why i framed the book the way i did was after a speech uh, a woman came up to me and she, uh, said i can't remember now whether she'd been in law or business but she'd been on a on a career track and she said um she thanked me for my article and she said, I had a child um, with special needs and I have spent the last 20 years at home. Um, and re- reading your article was the first time I didn't feel, and this is her words, I didn't feel like a lame Meaning, and I still almost cry when I t- think about it because as I say in the book, this is a woman we should be celebrating. This is a woman we should be saying, she is living human values. We need this woman in our society. We need to value and celebrate her. And she was saying to me, I felt like there was something wrong with me because
1: I stayed home to
2: care for a child who needed me. Uh,
1: I'm going to read a sentence here from page 36, which I think sums up this idea uh, to see the whole picture, not just the shining role models at the top, but the employees, every bit as talented and motivated, who were pushed or shut out of leadership opportunities as their lives took unexpected detours. Um, so I just, I have to say, I think that's a very humane message, the idea that there are unexpected detours. We all know it to be true. And, you know, imagine if you walked into a therapist's office and he or she said, well, just push on through. Like, not, that's not what they would say. They would give you some leeway there. Um, so, how does this vision you're talking about? A vision of unexpected detours, a little more inclusive. How does it lead to a different kind of feminism? Um,
2: So, this is the central argument of the book, and it is an argument that I could not have made three years ago. I simply could not have made it. I didn't believe it. Is that really we need to, we all have a competitive side. And that's, that was the side that was liberated in, women, in, in women's liberation, was our competitive side. And the best way to see it is Title IX. I mean, we literally did liberate women athletes. But we liberated that side of all of us that has our own goal and wants to pursue it. And that's, you know, self-interest and, and actualization through individual goals. But we all equally, and this is men as well as women, have a caring side. And I actually quote Bill Gates saying, "You know, these are the two basic drives of human nature: is competition and caring for others." Uh, and my argument is, feminism has all has been all about that competitive side and liberating us, my generation, and I was born in 1958, to be our fathers. Right? I mean, I grew up; when my mother was a homemaker, and my father was a lawyer. To be a woman, to be you know a feminist, was to be a lawyer. I now believe those two sides are equal, that the caring side of us is every bit as important. It's not necessarily more important. I mean, I'm a full-time career woman and can't imagine being anything else, but I'm equally a mother and a daughter and a wife uh, and a sister, and that those things are equal, and that if we recognize those as equal, then we have a much more inclusive feminism, because then we say to all women, That we support the care you give as much as the goals you achieve through your self-interest. And we say that to men, too. But to women, what that means, is not just, you know, career women versus stay-at-home moms. Yes, that's part of it. But it's a much deeper message than that. It says to all the women who take time out for care, you know, what you're doing is really important, and it's going to make you better in the workplace when you get back in. That's at the top. At the bottom, we say, all you women who are trying desperately to do two full-time jobs, we need to support your caregiving as much as we support your breadwinning. We need a whole infrastructure of care that allows you to be working but also to be a mother or a daughter because it's about taking care of your parents as much as taking care of your kids or your siblings or your extended family. So it's an inclusive feminism that reunites the experience of women at the top who are getting knocked off the leadership path the experience of women at the bottom and women in the middle who are just this close, right? That's what Elizabeth Warren writes about, this close to something happening. You got two, two, two parents working or one parent working and just making it, and they hit a tipping point, and suddenly they're in trouble. So the argument is that it's a, the second half of the women's movement needs to be much more inclusive, and it needs to be about embracing care and thinking about care rather, and how do we support care, that will support women, but more importantly, that will support the both halves of all of us and be the liber- the, a full liberation, not just a halfway re- revolution.
1: Um, and you're not just talking about care for children. I just wanna no. make that clear. <laughs> like what other kind, what, what care, one of, the, one of the things you do well in this book is reframe this conversation and define care very broadly. So, you know, what else is care? So yes, um, so first place, as I said, I'm born in
2: 1958. That's the height of the baby boom. I was telling Hannah before that when I got a wrinkle, Madison Avenue was on it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know everything that's happened to me, I'm the, the, the biggest demographic right there. And as I jen Poo writes in her book, The Age of Dignity, which calls for a similar infrastructure of care as I do, although we didn't know it, um, we're now facing an elder boom. Right, and so as we as we enter into the elder boom, care for all of us. If we're if we're we're children for our parents, but again for simply the older generation that is living longer, uh, and and care is really about investing in the quality of others' lives, and the thing that again I could never have argued, but that was kind of a revelation was discovering, a. Uh, a book by a philosopher in the 1970s called On Caring. And it's a little book. It was part of a philosophy series of great philosophers. It's a man. He's a father. He's not writing about work-life balance. I don't think he would have recognized the term. But what he talks about is what caring is and what it gives you. Caring is investing in others, right? So competition is investing in yourself. Both are great but when you invest in others you are essentially allow you're shaping them but you're allowing them to reach their full potential right which is what any parent would say right you don't want your child to be a mini me you want your child to achieve his or her full potential but you need to be there to shape and guide that person on the other end when we're caring for an elder that person's not a child They're still a full, autonomous human being, and your job is to let them be as autonomous as they can be, not to dress them and feed them, but to let them be that person while helping them. Now, what I just described is if you ask me what makes a good manager, that's what I'd say. It's somebody who knows how to shape and mentor the people who work for them, to empower them to reach their full potential, but to do it in a way that you still are shaping, you're still in charge in some way. So the argument at the core of the book is, it, there's a chapter called, is managing money really harder than managing kids? And my answer is most, uh, most certainly no, that actually caring and doing it right is just as hard as anything else we do, and it's just as rewarding in terms of our own growth. Uh, and that's true for women, but of course it's also true for men.
1: So now we've defined the ideal. Now we're going to talk about how that ideal way- crashes into the American <laughs> workforce, which is a, 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 a great a great bit of diagnosis in this book. Um, I'll begin with a study, which I've also found really interesting, by Robin Eli. Yes. Uh, she's called in by a company, and the company says, look, we've got this problem with retaining women. You, you've all heard this phrase, be a law firm, investment firm, whatever. We've got a problem retaining women because that we have all these women work conflicts. So can you guys, you researchers, go, go, go interview our workforce and figure this out? So talk about what, what these guys discovered and what you learned from it.
2: So, Ely is a um, professor at Harvard Business School and just completely coincidentally, I met her just as an example of how breadwinning and caregiving work together when our children were at the Soldiers Field Daycare Center uh, at, in Boston uh, and uh, she was a young professor and so was I and uh, 20 years later, we're both writing on the same subject. But she, she gets called in to address the women's problem uh, and Deborah Spar talks about this, too. When she was a professor at Harvard Business School, all these firms saying, we're losing women. So she and her team interview lots and lots of folks in this, it's a consulting firm. And what she discovers is that there are an equal number of men leaving as women, and they are leaving because the pace of work is too great, and because it's, the, the firm is over-promising and, uh, and over-delivering. Or in other words, that there's a sense not just that we're working really hard, but a lot of this is useless. It's not efficient work. It's not smart work. It is, you know, 24-7 for the client. It's a kind of macho we're always on. And lots of men are saying, I don't want to work that way either. But when they present those facts to the executive committee, they don't want to hear it. Right, Because that's a much bigger challenge. That's saying you're not working well. You've got a problem. You need to change your whole work culture. And what she explains is they just don't want to hear that. They want to think of it as a women's problem that you fix by offering incentives for women in various ways. And so I use that to say this is a window into a much bigger problem, something that that is being recognized certainly by millennials and by the most progressive, and progressive I don't mean right, left, I mean the the, the best uh, companies that, you know, the way we have worked where, you know, the office is a place you must go to do your work, uh, FaceTime matters more than actual performance and results. uh, That's a whole work culture that we have to undo, not just for women, But for, I would say, for productive workers, but certainly for people who are going to be both breadwinners and caregivers, for the people who have
1: got, who are are most of us, who have to combine the two in some way. So... Let's talk about overwork for a second more. <laughs> you, I'm sure you would describe yourself as an overworker at times in your career. You would work late nights. Oh, yeah. You compare yourself to, a, to another female colleague of yours. So think back, say, you know, in a really difficult case. You're working at the State Department. This is critical work. Yep. Um, you, you've got to work late nights. So, so just do a little honest assessment of like what you have actually learned about overwork, when it's necessary, when it does bad and good, as opposed to the theoretical in your own career. Sure. So I think there are two ways
2: to think about it. One is what do you do in the workplace in a, in a given, with a given demands, and the other is how you think about your career. So in the workplace itself, no question, I, I say that um, when my parents showed up at law school, they wanted to see the chair in my, fo- in my professor's office because I'd spent more time there pulling all-nighters than I had at home. I have certainly pull my share. And what I tell uh, younger people uh, in particular, but also when you have a big job, There are just times when you just gotta get it done, right? And in the State Department, I I oversaw a massive strategic review for Secretary Clinton, and the end game of that was about a month of very, very late nights. I don't think you can avoid that. Um, within, Within the workplace, you can say to people, if you take that kind of time on a big project, you can then take an equivalent amount of time off or really reduce time. So it is perfectly possible to make it to, to tell people, look, there are these periods of real intensity, and then there are ways to slack off. Uh or I wouldn't say slack off. I actually that's a Freudian slip, but but what I would say is and at New America we have we have six weeks off, you have six weeks of paid time off. And if you, you can you must take four weeks of it or you lose it. In other words, I've made it so you can't just not take it and then cash it out. You have to take time off because I actually believe you'll be better if you, if you do that. But I think there, there are, within the workplace, when there are intense periods, you can say, yep, you gotta get the job done, but then we also expect you to rest and recharge. I also think, though, a lot of this is career planning. There are jobs that are just going to require that kind of intensity, really big jobs. You know, as I say in the State Department, I couldn't say to Egypt, hold the revolution. I'm going home on the weekend. You know, there are jobs you have to be there for. But you can alternate those big jobs with jobs that are much more flexible. So I argue that you should plan your career the way you you would train on a Stairmaster, interval training, right? You go really hard, and then you slow down. And you go really hard again. And in my own life, you know, I got tenure. That was an incredibly hard period. I then spent three years focusing on having a family. I became a dean. I worked incredibly hard for five years. And then we took a sabbatical. I came back. I went into government. And then I took two years that were very different. I was working all along. But I was very much kind of, here's a period where I'm going hard, and here's a period where I know I need more time for my my family or for your own personal passion. So I think there are ways we can think about how we plan our careers, and then there are ways in the workplace where you can acknowledge the, the necessity but not be always on.
1: Um, You mentioned the word flexibility. I love that section of the book where you say sometimes you look at companies and flexibility reminds you of the iron block constitutions (laughs) where (laughs) the company policy will talk about flexibility, but they won't actually, you'll pay a price or they won't actually have flexibility. So, So just talk about that, what you've discovered about the American workforce and supposed flexibility.
2: So this is actually also work um, that Joan Williams uh, and, and her colleagues have done that really says the problem is not flexibility policies, the problem is flexibility stigma. So what I said was, as a foreign policy person, the, the, for those of you who remember the Soviet bloc, there were all these constitutions that you know, listed all these great rights and none of them were ever honored. Uh, and these policies that say you, know, you can take time or you can have flex time or you can flex work, when people do it, they are taking themselves off the fast track. They are Not just the fast track, the leadership track. And those two, of course, are, are assumed to be the same thing, which wastes a lot of talent. Uh, so the, the argument is the problem, what we should be combating is flexibility stigma. We should be focusing on the idea that somehow, when you say I'm gonna work from home one day a week, you're presumed to to have lost a number of IQ points or simply to you know, no longer have a commitment to your job. This is ridiculous, right? It's about results. You know, I, my, in my view, you can work from wherever you need to work. What I care about is do you get the work done on time, of the quality I need, and are you available to colleagues who need you to be available at critical times? If you do those things, you should be able to pretty much work from however, wherever you want. Now, obviously, I recognize, I run an organization of 200 people, and we're we're grappling with the fact that the knowledge workers can do that much more easily than the receptionist, right? uh, There are, I know, in Silicon Valley, robot receptionists, and maybe that's where we're going. But the point is, how do you make that, jobs do differ, but even jobs like HR that need to be there, you can build in real flexibility. And the key point is to say, the people who take that flexibility are managing their portfolio of how they get their work done and how they get their care done, and they're judged on results. So it's it's really we have to combat the stigma, let more than pushing for the policies.
1: Okay, so now let's talk about. We're gonna wind our way to the last part of this, and then I'll open them open this up for questions. So prepare them. Um, solutions. Or So I wanna break that up into two sections, cultural solutions and institutional solutions, possibilities. Let's talk about the cultural ones, meaning how we all think and talk about this issue. Um, you have a section where you talk about changing our language. Yeah. Can, you, can you talk about that a little bit, meaning what? How should we talk about certain things and not talk about certain things so that we re-acclimate the workplace to their current working realities? So that
2: you give me the opportunity then to talk about men, because uh, that's the biggest place where we have to we have to change our language and the way we think, so w- um, w- in talking about care, as I said, uh, I am firmly convinced that we have liberated women. Uh, if I had a daughter, which I don't, she'd be raised radically differently than my mother was raised. My mother was raised, you know they they said you. Can't go to medical school. You're going to get married. What's the point? Um, why? Why should we invest in you? Um, whereas, of course, our daughters are being raised to be whatever they could be. My sons, um, until I started writing this book, uh, were being raised. I think very similar to the way my father was raised. You know, your job as a man is to have a career and to support a family, and that's your self worth. Uh, and you know, as I said in the article, and I say in the book. Um, interviews with men at the end of their lives, the second, the the greatest regret at the end of their lives is they didn't lead the life they wanted to lead. That's interesting. Sounds a lot like women uh, in the 50s and 60s. And the second greatest regret is that they didn't spend enough time with their family. Uh, And I think we need to liberate men. We need to raise men and treat men on the assumption that they have a caring side and a competitive side just as much as women do, and that to be full human beings, they ought to be able to invest in either side just as freely as women can. So what does that mean in terms of how we change how we talk? Well, first of all, it means if you're going to say working mother, then you, every time you talk about a man with kids, you better say working father. Every time. Why on earth do we say she's a working mother and not he's a working father? Right? It means, and I did start doing this, by the end of my time at Princeton, when somebody comes to you, a young man, and wants career advice, you do exactly what you do with a young woman, and you say, "Have you thought about having a family? And have you thought about how to fit your career together when you have child uh, uh, child-rearing responsibilities?" I, for 20 years, I had w- that conversation with women, and never with men. And you know, it still does take both to create a child. We have not gotten to the point where, I'm not going to say how, but we still need a man and a woman to create a child. We need a man and a woman to raise a child, and raising a child means providing. It means providing cash, and it also means providing care. And both men and women are equally responsible. So we talk about working fathers. uh, we uh, we, we, We talk about men. We ask men. We give them paternity leave. Um, The other thing that I think we should start talking about is lead parenting. So I wrote this piece in the Washington Post for Father's Day where I said, my husband is the lead parent, right? He is a full-time tenured professor at Princeton. He obviously earns a good income. But I earn a bigger income and I have a bigger job. He is the lead parent. I can't do what I do without him because he is a provider. He provides care. I provide cash. We actually provide both, (laughs) Um, but we provide them in different different combinations. We ought to be talking about the people who are at home, not as stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home dads, which sort of assumes you're supposed to be in the workplace, and if you're not, we need an adjective for you. But that parenting or caregiving requires somebody to take the lead, somebody to anchor that side of your life, and then breadwinning. Similarly, often you, you some some couples can do it exactly 50/50. I, in my experience, that's really hard. Somebody's likely to be the lead in either one. So that's another way I would talk differently.
1: Um, and then, what about institutions? Like institutions, this is. really hard part so let's say you know you're at new america i gave you a magic wand hillary's sitting at the other end of this table and she says you know i want to propose to i'm the president now and i want to propose two things to shift the american workforce what are those two things or three things
2: um so i was we were laughing so the first is i think paid family leave of various kinds uh I, i really do think you cannot be serious about the idea that you have to we have to take care of each other, right? And taking care of children means investing in the next generation of Americans. And what we now know about the neuroscience means we really are shaping the brains of the next generation of, uh, of Americans in those those first five years and, and continuing. If we don't make it possible for all family members to take care of the people they love in ways that don't just risk not using their job, but gives them some amount of paid time. I think that one, that's a first. The second would be high quality, affordable childcare and elder care. And so this is what I call an infrastructure of care. We have an infrastructure of competition. It's pretty lousy. I live on Amtrak and I'm in a you know, at a slow boil every time I get on the train, because this is, you know, a great country and we can't run a train. Uh, But we do have an infrastructure of competition and we recognize that without that infrastructure, the economy cannot flourish. We need a similar infrastructure of care. And this is a Republican and a Democrat issue. If you're a Republican, you might say, you're going to do this all through tax credits or, or ways that will stimulate the, de- the ability for to find private caregivers in various ways. If you're a Democrat, you may want some kind of uh, threshold. There, it... it we'll have the same debates about how you provide it as how you provide an infrastructure of competition, but the fact is we have to have the same supports to allow us to be able to take care of each other as to earn an income. Again, the idea, they're equal. We can't survive as a race without them, and we should be equally supporting them, and depending on your individual circumstances, uh, sharing the way that we do them.
1: Great. Right. So we're going to open up for questions. Great. Uh, first of all, thank you so much, Anne Marie, for writing this new book and for articulating these thoughts. Um, I had a question about Kate Bollock's uh, new book, Spinster, another provocative Atlantic cover story. And I guess my challenge with both Lean In and with uh, your article was that it assumes that for women to have it all, you know, part of that is having marriage and family. And Kate really questions that in her book. And I think for a generation of, of women in their early 30s now and late 20s who are entrepreneurs, there's this big question about whether having it all does include having a family or whether we can be you know, happy without that.
3: What's your thought on her book?
2: So I haven't read her book. I read her article, and I do talk about uh, the, the the central chapter of the book talks about again a more inclusive feminism, and it talks about rich and poor women, women of color, and white women, uh, and uh, single women, and and women who are who have families in different kinds. First thing I'd say is, y- you may not be married or have kids, but you do have parents, and you do have a family, right? The, the idea that your family is just your children, uh, you know. If I didn't have children, I'm, I'm incredibly close to my parents and my siblings, uh, and that's care too, every bit as much. But equally, care is about investing in others. And while I know you invest in others all the time. It's investing in your community. It's invest- it can be investing in your church. It, it, and indeed, in the, this philosopher who writes about it says that care for a human being is the same care that an artist gives to a creation, and he writes. He has a very—it's a fascinating sort of analysis of how, if you think about a sculptor or a painter or a, a composer, they often say, "You know, the the stone shaped itself," or my mother, as a painter, will say, "You know, the painting needs this." It's like as if there again this idea that it's something you invest in and nurture, but it's something that also has a life of its own that you enable and that. I think to be a full human being, you need that in your life, but I do not think that means you need to be married with kids to have it. That's just one way we do it. I know it's your
1: book, but I'm going to say that I think you know the article kind of assumed family. It was just the spot the discussion was in. The book does not at all. I mean, that's one of the things I love about the book is this reframing of the idea of care as a central part of the human identity, male and female. So it doesn't matter like you probably want to feel connected to people just (laughs) as you're a competitive entrepreneur. So it's just about Allowing in yourself to connect with both those sides of your identity and asking the American work for the workforce to to acknowledge that human beings are made are are made up of these two things they're not just like ambition machines I love that <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I wish we'd had this <laughs> I, I have worked for twenty years and I uh, had three children. And then by the fourth child, I was not able to both work and take care of all the kids. Lucky enough, that did not necessarily economically impact me too much and my husband. Um, But what keeps me up at night is once the children are grown, I would like to go back into the workplace. and I am afraid that my skill set will be seen as antiquated, et cetera. It's a common question. Yes. What are your thoughts about the on-ramp back yes. into a career after your kids are grown?
2: So I'm glad you asked this question because this is the other piece, of, one of the other things that we have to do in the in the workplace. And I have a chapter on the workplace. Um, so there are a couple points. One is what you've done caring for your four children. That's part of the core of the book is... As important a set of experiences in terms of enabling you to be a manager and a leader as anything else I can experience and I say there's no question I'm a better manager because I'm a mother there's just no question it just one example the humility right I mean teenagers telling me on a basic on a daily basis I have no idea what I'm talking about I you know <laughs> generally push back but so often so often I tell them something and then I realize, God, I'm a hypocrite. I still don't do that, right? I mean, it's don't do as I do, do as I say. That, that kind of constant, my rethinking what, what is right, what is not, makes me far better in the workplace. I, it, you cannot think that you are the almighty oracle when you are raising kids. So first thing I would say is just there's, there's got to be much more recognition of what caregiving does for us. Second though, this idea of interval training, we need your talent. We absolutely need your talent. You know, there are many other panels here about the skills gap and what are we going to do and we need, we need to educate you know, young people differently. I get that, but we have an entire generation of very talented women somewhere in their late 40s to late 50s who, you know, if Hillary Clinton runs and wins, she'll be 70 when she runs. Janet Yellen is 67. You know, th- women live longer than men. We're, knock wood, we are healthier. We, we are healthier than our parents were. You've got 20 years of productive uh, life in the workforce. And the, the really smart businesses are gonna start seeing that. So, and you, you were seeing bits of it, but I think that's again a piece of the national conversation that has to say, we got a huge talent pool here. It's this very antiquated notion of the sort of fast track, straight up career. If we take an interval training view of careers, you're ready for phase three. Or maybe not quite yet.
1: <laughs> so, just to pick up on the smart businesses piece, Jackie Vanderbrug, Bank yes. of America. Yes. Um, I'm curious the language that you think is going to make this um, go mainstream. In other words, Hillary, when she shifted from, you know, women and the right thing to do to the smart thing to do from an economic perspective, um, the conversation shifted. Are you framing this as an economic piece, like caregiving as the smart economic thing to do, or is it sort of more the moral side or both? Which way does the book go? And do you think the economic case has been made? Goodness,
2: yes. I think it's economic. I also, I frankly think, at least w- with respect to children, it's a national security case. I mean, if we don't invest in our children, if we don't give them what we need, um, we, are, we are harming ourselves as a nation. And I actually talk about the Pentagon gets this completely. And the Pentagon is one of the few places that pays early childhood, their early childhood teachers the same as they pay their other teachers and pay their teachers in general higher than most people. They, they get it. Right. If we we don't in, if we don't invest, we will pay the price. So it's an e- but it's definitely an economic case. Um, it, t- your first question: How do what will change the language? Phase three. Right. Thinking about everybody's careers, as I said, in terms of different intervals. You come out of college, you've got an interval. Although coming out of college will change too, but you've got an interval of. 10 years where you can go really hard, right? People are marrying later. They're having children later. You can go really hard. That's great. You know, you can take the job that sends you to travel all around the world. That's wonderful. You can pull those all-nighters if you want to. That's great. Then there'll be a period, and different people will experience it differently, but it's a 10 to 15-year period where you're going to want to work differently. I have actively deferred taking on really big jobs. I've had Uh, I've had a two year big job and then I stopped. Coming back, I've held off a job that took over me because this is a period where yes, I wanna work, but I wanna work in a way that allows me to be there for my kids and for my parents. And then there's phase three or phase four or phase five for our kids. So I think if we think about it that way, let's imagine the women the people who are in the bank now. part of it is how you talk about people now It's like okay so where are you now? what phase are you in? How do you want to work now and how do you want to keep your hand in if you're if you're working part-time to make sure that when you when you're ready you can ramp back up uh, and that that also means you're much lower, uh, loss, loss, right, so you don't have the retention issues, the retraining issues, that you basically will have a workforce that is far more flexible and far more available in terms of the investment you've put in that you'll be able to then recoup if you think about it this way.
3: Hi, my name is Erica Keswin and I, um, I consult with companies looking at how technology impacts people, business processes, and corporate culture. And on the one hand, I've seen that technology has been great for women. I know for me personally, I can take a business call on the way to a school meeting. I have three teenage kids. I can turn it off or at least try to from six to eight and then yep. get back, on it at back online at night. But my question is, have you, are you addressing in this book the downside of technology and this 24-7 connectivity and the difficulty of turning it off? And can you give us an example of a company that's come up with some progressive solutions in, in how to deal with it, because they coming up with these solutions, I believe will ena- enable companies to be able to retain both men and women.
2: Agreed. Um, so yes, I mean it, there are. I have a number of examples, uh, and actually, there's a um, there's a whole. Movement that I can't yet talk about, but by the time the book comes out, I talk about it in the book that, that it offers lots and lots of examples of companies that are working very, very differently. Uh, so, the first point uh, that, that I made I, all the research on productivity and on creativity, and we need more and more creativity, says you have to have downtime. Right, it starts with Henry Ford. He has an eight-hour work day because after eight hours, the error rate goes up to the point that it was no longer worth it. It's not, it's not rocket science. The work on creativity in particular, and as a deeply creative person, I know this, I live it. I go very, very hard, and I take lots of downtime. I mean, real downtime, where I'm not on, I'm taking walks, I'm thinking, I'm just letting my mind switch off so that it can do the work that I know that will produce a new idea or a, a new article. There's countless studies on this. It's not, I mean, the best, uh, the, the place that's, that's uh, the book that, that goes through them is overwhelmed by Bridget Schulte. Um, so that's one thing, just as we understand what makes productive, creative workers, uh, knowing that we need real downtime. The practices, I think, include, at New America, we don't email on weekends. Uh, we really try not to, and if I have to, and I'm the boss, so I know if they see my name, they're going to at least read it. Then I put in the I put in the subject line, "Do not respond until Monday," because some and I, I try actually not to send them out until Monday. But then I then sometimes I forget. <laughs> I've got a whole you know, box. but we have so we have that practice. We have we have we really have a culture that says I um evaluate people on how well they're managing stress. So I just went through my performance reviews and in a number of cases I marked people down because they're not taking time off enough and their stress is spilling into the workforce, is spilling into the workplace and that's creating a less than pleasant atmosphere for other people and that means we're getting we're less productive than we should be. So making that something you actually say, you know, look, it's part of your job is to take the time I'm giving it to you. It's the opposite of flexibility stigma. It says, you know, a really good worker is somebody who knows how to take time uh, and how to balance. Uh, And I think there are a lot of other places that have, you know, experimented with different ways of giving people time off, um, and there are lots of examples.
3: Um. Hi. 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 Uh, So first, I applaud you for shifting the conversation to being about women and men as well, because it seems to me the more we keep the conversation as women's issues, the more we enable society to sort of shift it to the side and say, well, this isn't a societal issue, so thank you for that. Um, But I guess the question that comes out of that for me is, as you've just said, there are innumerable studies about productivity and uh, about how having a balance for the entirety of society will make us more productive and yet it's not occurring. So I, you, you talk about shifting the, the, the language and teaching our kids. Is your view that, that um, the only way to make it happen is sort of a, a growth up as our kids get older and they see it from a different place or is there a way to force the change in a more expedient way so that society and, and current companies can say, wait a minute, we need to shift this.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I think
3: we can shift it right now.
2: In fact, if I, I think if working parents uh, ran companies and, uh, w- w- well, let's put it that way. If working parents who were active working parents ran companies, lots of things would change very quickly. Uh, in the sense, exactly as I said, you can right now essentially say time macho is stupid. Time macho is this, I'm on 24-7, how cool I am. Bullshit. You're, you're, You're just, you're not working. Excuse my French. You're not working effectively. And again, I know my, I mean, I've, I've worked hard. My brother's an investment banker. I understand that when there's a deal, you have to be on. I get that. Uh, And there may be some jobs where you just say whether man or woman does them, then you need a full-time spouse at home, right? There may be just some jobs you're just going to say you just got to. But for many, many, many jobs, and that includes law firms, and and that includes many of the professional jobs we know, we have to have the courage to take it on and to just to, to, to change the way you talk about it. When I look at somebody who's there till midnight, I say, you're not managing your time well. Right? And, I, and I know that myself because I know that if I expect to be there till midnight, I'm a whole lot less efficient during the day. I hang out, I talk to people, whatever. When I had kids... I got a lot more efficient. I could get it done and get it done well in you know, the time I was in the office. So it just, but it means really taking that on uh, in the same way that we t- we've taken on you know, smoking or gay marriage or any number of things. You just say, wait a minute, why is being on 24 seven such a great thing? All the research shows you're less productive. What's the matter?
1: Let's, there's been a, a guy over there. Uh, you. <laughs> yes. There's three you. guys. <laughs> there's three guys. You with the red wristband. I feel like you, I figure you're I've right got, there, you've had your hand up the longest. So let's give it to I you. I guess me. I have I'm one
3: luxury. Um, oh. I'm a man. Oh. And so, so while I have All the right. mic, I'm going to ask you two quick questions. Um, young couple, they get married. And they're determined that they both want to work. They're career people. That's what's in their head. Um, Are they going through an appropriate assessment of how many children they can really have without kind of tipping over? That's question one. Question two is a little bit more provocative. Um, I sat through a session similarly on women's issues and I got the distinct impression that the people running these um, women's issues groups had really not done a great job reaching out to men I really passionately believe in women's issues.
2: Oh, thank you. It's great, great questions. So on the first one, there is an entire set of questions that young couples have to ask each other when they get married. And it's it's a whole dialogue in the book. Uh, and it is not, do you believe in equality and will you support my career? It is if I get a promotion that requires travel, will you defer a promotion so that I can take mine? If I get a promotion that requires me to move, will you move with me and then uh, take the hit to your career? Because ultimately, if you're really going to do it, both of you are going to have to make real career compromises to allow each of you to have the career you want, or one of you is gonna to have to really take the, prime, the lead parent role for a while and then be able to get back in. Uh, but right now, the conversation young couples are having is just completely unrealistic, because of course you wanna support each other. That's not the question. The question is when you hit the tipping point, who, what gives? And all too often, it's the woman. The other thing I will say is same-sex couples are very helpful in this regard because there's no default role, right? There's no, no, but it's very important. I mean, early on in researching this book, a young woman came up and, and said, you know, my wife and I, you know, we, there is no default. There's no assumption that one of us is going to be the caregiver, and that means you have to negotiate it out. Um, the second uh, point that um, you're, I would not be where I am But for the men in my life, starting with my father. And in in writing this book, uh, a good friend wrote me and said, you know, after the article came out, and she said, Gosh, you know, your dad was really different. And you know, my father wasn't like this. We were all in Virginia in the 60s. She said, Your father always raised you to have a career. And I wrote my dad and I said, You know, Dad, I I know this is true, but why? And he said, In the 60s, there were lots of men who were divorcing their wives, and their wives couldn't support them. And I was a lawyer, and I swore that my daughter would be able to support herself, which is something I didn't know. So start with my dad. And then the mentors I've had, uh, two professors who were passionate feminists. Right, they believed in their wives. They believed in their daughters. Without them, I'd never be where I am. And I think equally, there are certainly all the fathers out there, but many of the men who simply believe that there's a huge amount of talent in the world, in among women, that we're not uh, valuing. So, this is a book about wanting to liberate men, but equally, I would say uh, a full revolution. A revolution for gender equality is a revolution that has to both change women, men's roles as much as women's roles, but also that has to be a revolution that all of us make.
1: Uh, just piggybacking off of your last statement, um, how important do you think it is not only for men to be part of these discussions, and, but also to take these ideas back to spaces um, with other men, to talk about these things with each other, not when women are around? Yes,
2: thank you. Great last question. So I felt a little funny, you know, as the article, as I said, many women said that I'd given voice to something they felt but couldn't say. Uh, And I hope that this book uh, does the same for men, but obviously it can't do it in the same way, in the sense that I hope it opens up conversation. Uh, and challenges men. I hope, actually, women will read it and hand it uh, to their partner, although there is a chapter called Let It Go that takes women to task for our own sexism, and they may not want to hand that to their partner. Um, But I I do think this is critical that men... now have this conversation themselves, and a lot of the, when I say the time macho, this is again men who are, who may want to work a different way, who may, who absolutely want to say, look, I'm going home for my kids' baseball game, but who feel like that is just completely counter to the code of masculinity. Ultimately, men are going to have to change the way they define what a good man is. Women have a huge role to play in that, right? And what women women think of and what we look for in a man, that's very important. But there is a whole piece of this that is going to have to be done by men themselves. And all I can do is to try to open the door and say, it's time. It's been 50 years of the women's revolution. The second half of that revolution you guys are going to have to, to play your part.
1: Well, thank you, Anne-Marie. Thank you all.
0: That was Anne-Marie Slaughter and Hannah Rosen recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 30, 2015. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson editorial director of public programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.